Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Passion drive and patience what brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has got you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you'll always find exactly what you're looking for And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. I remember saying, gee, Joe, you think out of 60 million people, million people, somebody will want to buy a spot somewhere. I'm not known as a real hard guy. So he said, when Smolian gives you grief for your lack of performance, it's tough. But then the ratings came, and then everything just exploded. Try to imagine a world without sports talk, without round-the-clock debate of your favorite teams in your hometown. Imagine driving to work the Monday after an enormous sports weekend, and there's only news on the radio, or weather, or come sail away by sticks again. This was the life of the sports fan before 1987. And Jeff Simoleon changed your life. He grew up in Indianapolis in the 60s, then formed Emmis Communications in the 70s and began buying radio stations. He purchased frequencies in New York, including WHN. And in 87, he had an idea. Let's go all sports. It was a concept met with resistance and ridicule. By his co-workers, the early days of the fan were a disaster. But within four years, he had sold the fan for $70 million, the highest price ever for a radio station. These are the stories of how Susan Waldman discovered Buck Showalter, the commercial that was too crass that it never aired, and how Christopher Russo was once described as Daffy Duck on steroids. Jeff sold the fan for 70 mil. Two years earlier, he bought the Mariners for just 75. Owning a baseball team was a rare failure, however, and Jeff will explain why. 
When Tony in Staten Island calls up the fan to rip Aaron Boone, Jeff made that happen, for better or worse. This is Jeff Simoleon's New York accent. Jeff, how you doing? I'm great, Damon. I'm great. Great to be with you. So good to have you here as well. And your journey to radio starts as a kid in Indianapolis, and it starts on a transistor radio. What's the magic of listening to a radio on a transistor radio? What's the magic of listening to a ball game in the Midwest as you're growing up and what sucks you in? Well, I think it was just a major, major part of my life. Uh, And I think it was the part of lives of a lot of kids uh, in that era. Uh, The transistor radio was the first really portable radio. In, in my era, I'm so old that we put them under our pillows and listen to ball games and top 40. Um, and I think it was just a major part of our existence. Um, and I did it. And that's how I fell in love with the business. So it's interesting because I think today it's hard to imagine having a, a radio landscape that doesn't have sports talk in it, especially right. for listeners of WFAN. Right. So take me back before sports talk in the 70s, the 80s. What was sports on the radio? What did that consist of? There were individual shows. I, I always talked about the fact, and it's ironic, I'm out on the campus of my alma mater, USC, at this at, at Jason Barron Sports Conference. But um, when I was not paying attention in a class in the 1960s, I always thought about all sports radio. thought it would be a fun idea. Uh, there were always sports talk shows at night, uh, but nobody had done the whole format. And when we bought... The Doubleday stations, we had a chance to uh, have an AM station. We said, let's try all sports. Nobody in our company wanted to do it. Uh, and then everybody felt sorry for me because it was my idea. And we ended up doing it. And I, in the book, I have a favorite saying in life. The line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. And I've been on both sides. So one chapter of the book is Idiot to Genius, the Birth of All Sports Radio, WFAN. And then the next chapter is Genius to Idiot my ownership of the Seattle Mariners. So if you live life long enough, Damon, you you go back and forth. (laughs) So at this time before WFAN, if you were a sports fan, you would listen to games on the radio. Right. Maybe you would have a nighttime radio host that would talk about the sports, but it would be on a news talk station or at a music station. They would get maybe an hour, two hours, something like that. And you were thinking, oh, I've heard a guy – on the radio do an hour, two hours, but I think we can do 24 hours of that. That was your concept. That was my concept. Uh, and most people thought it was kind of silly. Um, and for the first year, uh, it was called Smallian's Folly. Uh, Jim Lampley called it the Vietnam War of Emmis. Um, it looked <laughs> going to work very well. Um, and then and then we, we merged with the 660 frequency, the NBC. We bought that station. We put, um, uh, we put, Don Imus on the air. There's a funny story about that. And then we put Mike and the Mad Dog together, and the whole thing just came together, and it worked very well. So before we get to Imus, yeah. your concept is it's going to work in New York if it's going to work anywhere. Why would you think that? Because it, people have a greater affinity for sports in New York. They care more passionately. If you really look at sports in this country, and I'm on the West Coast now, um, it's just not the same affinity for sports that you have. Um, and we used to say there's ever a place where people talk about sports and care about sports 24 hours a day. It's New York city. And you weren't a New Yorker as a native, but you could just sense that going there, traveling there, working there. You said, if it's going to work anywhere, New York's the place. Absolutely. Right. So you have this concept 
and yeah. nobody's buying it. Nobody's right. thinking in, in your boardroom, in, in right. your conference calls that this is going to work. What were their hesitations? Uh, not enough listeners. <laughs> not enough audience. Not enough advertisers. It was losing money. And uh, uh, we had, a, and this is a very collaborative group, and we had a vote on doing the idea, and it got voted down. And you know, one of my friends said, what do you want to do? And I, I'm, I said, look, you can't lead where people won't follow. So we shouldn't do it. And then the next day, some of my senior managers said, look, we're really doing everywhere well everywhere else. We know this is your idea. We'll do it. We don't love it, but we'll do it. So that was the you know infamous birth of all sports radio in the United States. You know, ESPN launches in 1979, and at first right. everyone thinks that's a disaster as well. But Absolutely. by the time you're trying to pull off the fan in 87, Right. Sports Center, ESPN had gotten a foothold. Did you look at them as an example? Hey, doing all sports on a platform can be successful? Yeah, I think so. I think subconsciously you said, look, this is already starting to work. In those days, in the mid-80s, you know, it, it was, you know, not real successful, but starting to work. And we thought, you know, there's no reason this can't be have impact in, in local markets. So you start to assemble a roster. And right. you've admitted the first flaw was you were looking for names instead right. of local personalities. You right. mentioned Jim Lampley. Right. Give us a sense of what the day parts looked like on the original WFAN. Well, Greg Gumbel was the morning guy, and Jim Lampley was midday. And then we were planning to bring in Pete Franklin. He had a heart attack, so it took a little while. Um, but it was it was big national name. Pete was well known as the biggest sports, you know the sports talk host in America coming from Cleveland. So that was the idea, big name, and it was much more national in scope. And I think when we realized this has to be about New York, we changed some of the programmers, and uh, and, that, and that's when it really turned around. Early on, the Raiders are not there, and the revenue's not there. You have a great right. anecdote in this book where you take the family out to the Hamptons, and you're just like, yeah. let me get away from things, and you're listening yeah. intently to the fan, yeah. And you hear commercials ad nauseum for a discount funeral home. Discount yeah. funeral home. And you're just right. thinking, this is just so depressing. I, we can't right. have this on the air. What is that What is that moment like? Well, it, I came back and I said, I don't know how much they're paying us for those ads. But it just, you're hearing every, it seemed like every 15 minutes. You know, it, it, we're trying to launch a station. It can't be helping. And what they didn't tell me was that the, 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 Discount funeral business was owned by the brother or brother-in-law of one of our salespeople, and he just basically gave him the spots on a, the per inquiry basis, which means oh. unless you sell a funeral, you don't the station doesn't get paid. So I don't know how many people died that week, but I don't think the station got any money for it. <laughs> and they said if we told Smolian exactly that, he would have killed all of us. So, <laughs> but, you know, there's so, so many crazy things that happened. You also are listing on the first day, and yeah. Susan Waldman, who's now so familiar to everybody right. on the fan and all New right. York sports right. fan listeners, who's been an yeah. institution on, on Yankees broadcasts forever, she does an update. And you're listening, and you say, I listened in horror as she attempted yeah. to read a sports update. She was terrible, stumbling yeah. over her words. Inflections yeah. were off. Yeah, And she said, you know, you'd said, we, we can't have this on the air. Now, that's some tough critique that you put in a book. Ultimately, you became a huge fan of Susan's work, but yes. 
that sharp eye and ability to criticize was yeah. that important not only to the fan but also throughout your radio career no because in reality i didn't do that very much um you know i mean i, I had a rule that you never call a disc jockey if i had a problem i called our head of programming but i was so meshed in, in wfan in the beginning that was one of the few times I ever did that. And I remember going to Rick Cummings who had enough programming and I said, Susan's awful. And, and, and we laugh about it now because we put her out in the field where she became the greatest field reporter in the history of sports. Uh, I talk about in the book, she really was responsible for Buck Showalter's managerial career by giving us some advice in Seattle. And when George Steinbrenner and I, and I asked Susan, if we were a Mariners game years later, who's the best manager in baseball? And, and she said, best young manager. He said, definitely Buck Showalter. So we immediately called him and flew him out to Seattle for an interview. George Steinbrenner had just fired it, fired all the coaches on that Yankee team. And he said, wait a minute, why are they interviewing this guy for a manager's job when I just fired him? So Steinbrenner gets him back in New York and immediately hires Showalter, and that was the start of his career. So all that comes from the Susan Waldman conversation. Uh, and I love Susan. We were inducted into the Hall of Fame a few months ago, and I adore Susan and one of the great talents of all time. Um, so, but I have to laugh. I normally never micromanage like that, but it was just, it was my baby. It was the first day. And, and she was in retrospect, probably not very good reading, you know, updates. And she's become an icon since then in her yeah. natural role of reporting, as you said. So tell us that Don Imus story now. Well, when we were putting the station on the air, we were buying, we had, WFM was on 1050. And in those days, we were buying the NBC stations and he'd go, I have one AM and one FM. Well, 660 was a better frequency. So I had worked with Dial Imus's agent because he had been Robert W. Morgan's agent in Los Angeles. So I knew Mike and we were meeting, debating whether we we're going to put Don on WFAN. Now at the time, Don had been in and out of rehab for a long time. So that was going to be problematic. And I remember saying to Mike, let me see if I get this right. We have a radio station that's losing records amounts of money. We have a major league baseball team, the Mets by 1988 had a litany of drug problems. And we have a, a morning guy who's been in rehab more than he's been out of rehab in the last five years. What could possibly go wrong putting all this, <laughs> but we did. Uh, Don stayed sober the rest of his life. The the Mets worked out their props, and Fan became one of the great success stories of history. So I went from idiot to genius on that front. You had inherited the Mets radio deal, so you had right. an anchor tenant on right. the radio station. Right. Could WFAN have worked if you didn't have one of the big sports properties in this city? I think it would have been a lot tougher. I think it was an idea this time it probably was going to come. But I, I liken the shopping center business where you're going to build a shopping center. You better have Sears or Penny or Neiman or one of the big stores um, to get traffic in the mall. And that's what the Mets did. The Mets brought traffic into the radio station because you knew that in 175 nights a year, you're going to have a lot of people tuning in for Mets baseball. And you hit it at a time where the Mets are the hottest thing in the city. Right. They had just won in 86. Right. And they had this incredible group of charismatic guys in right. 87, 88, 89, 90. They're right. still in the hunt for the World Series. Right. Boy, that's that's just one of those things that you talk about. It's just a stroke of luck timing-wise that that's when you got the Mets and you didn't get them in like 1965. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right, right. So, and then that's life, Damon. I mean, you just never know what's going to work. Uh, I was very proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. I went from idiot to genius on that project. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I love some of the old imaging also from the fan because that's old imaging of my youth. And, you know, the expanding jock strap was an infamous one that lives forever, expanded sports coverage. But we got to talk about one that never made air. I love this story in the book when you guys had a commercial Starts out with a creaking sound, and yep. then a cross rises slowly from the ground. Right, and on the cross is a referee. Right, and the, yep. the imaging is there are only two things a New York sports fan wants, and the other is WFAN. And yep. you ran this by some consultants, I guess, and they said that ain't never going to work with the archdiocese. We well, yes, <laughs> somebody said if you don't run that spot by the archdiocese, you're dead. And we did, and they said. You run it and you're dead. So the spot never ran. The expanding jackstrap spot was was one that we said we could only run a late night cable. Well, it was so much fun, and I and I think I talk about it in the book that about a year later, radios in the industry where something works in one place, it's copied all over the country. And I'm driving down a freeway in Dallas, and I see this gigantic expanded jackstrap, and it says expanded coverage for the Dallas sports fan. And I went, oh my god. How could they put that on a billboard? We were running at midnight, you know, on on cable. And uh, but uh, yeah, we we had fun with that project. Different cultural fits in Texas in the eighties, I guess. I, so. <laughs> some of it is working, some yeah. of it isn't. But you have enough of support now and stability, and you yeah. need an afternoon drive show. And right. Lampley, Gumble, that national yeah. vibe's not working. Pete Franklin yeah. doesn't work out. Yeah, you have a weekend guy in Mike Francesa, right? You got a guy in Chris Russo, and you're thinking, hmm, maybe these two guys together. Let's start separately. What did you see in Chris Russo, the Mad Dog, before he became the Mad Dog? Well, I think people. I remember the first time I heard him was on Imus, and Imus called him Donald Duck on steroids, and it was clear he had a unique talent. I can't take any credit for this decision, Damon. That was Mark Mason. March saw something in both of them to put them together. We all knew that Francesca was brilliant. We all knew that, that Russo had a great personality, but I think it was Mark Mason who said, let's try them together. And they didn't love each other as it's been well chronicled over the years, but it just, it was, you know, it came together and it was magic. 
Did you think it was a good idea? Well, I thought they both had a lot of talent. I never really did. Um, but I thought they had a lot of talent and it seemed like it made a lot of sense at the time. Because, you know, working in radio as long as I have, anybody can tell you, you kind of want to like your co-host. It doesn't right. have to be best friends. You don't right. have to be best men in weddings. But yeah. you kind of don't want to hate them and hate yeah. every day showing up. And they actively dislike one another. So there must have been a sense from you, even Mark and other people, yeah. hey, maybe this won't work because they actively dislike one another. Was that a concern? No, I don't think it was well known that they didn't love each other in the beginning. It was sort of like, you know, there was trepidation. I think I think so much had been written later about, you know, they really didn't love each other. And then over time, they got to, you know, respect and like each other. But uh, But I think it was sort of like, you know, we think it'll work what the heck yeah in retrospect you're like yeah. oh of course that works but at yeah. the time there's no yeah. certainty there russo yeah. brings a frenetic hyper energy right. which is great on its own but right. it needs somebody to ground it francesa right. brings this level even keel but encyclopedic knowledge he needs somebody to up the energy right so together it works it but it, was- it might not have worked but it I guess in retrospect, when you look at the two parts of the puzzle, man, yeah. they do fit together almost seamlessly, right? And I think, and I think that was the idea. There's they're perfect complement to each other, and I think that was the original idea. It's been so long ago, but I think that was the original idea. How quickly did it work for them in the ratings? Pretty quick, pretty quick. By that time, um, it, we had we had moved to six sixty. We had seen research that the concept of a sports radio station was resonating with sports fans. Because I remember the first research we did after about six months, most sports fans in New York still were going to WINS and WCBS for the updates at 15 and 45. And within nine months after that, we were, we were getting all that audience. So all of it came together to just work spectacularly. There's a moment when you've launched WFAN, and I'm sure you're thinking, gosh, how much leash do I have here? How much rope do I have? This is a disaster. Right. Yeah. Then you spin forward and you guys are printing money. How quickly right. does the flip turn in the success of WFAN? Was it months? Yeah, it wasn't long. I mean, I, I can still remember Joel Hollander, and I think I talk about it in the book, was our first salesman. Right. And I remember saying, gee, Joel, you think out of 60 million people, million people somebody will want to buy a spot somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and he always said that. He said, I'm not known as a real hard guy. So he said, when Smolian gives you grief for your lack of performance, it's tough. Um, but then the ratings came and then everything just exploded. So usually once you get ratings, it usually takes one or two rating books and then it, it's validated by the agencies and then everything comes together. Right. The ratings are there. Then the money yeah. comes in and everything is is good. Can yeah. you then sense how sports talk is affecting sports culture in the city? No. I mean, yeah, well, I guess and no. I don't think, you know, I've had been asking, and I always tell that my favorite story is that sports talk changed how people in sports dealt with media. Um, because if you were an owner or a ball player or a manager, you got a bad column in the post of the daily news, you know, and you read it at eight in the morning, you put it down, you went about your day. But with sports talk, it became an integral part of everybody's lives. So if you're a player or an owner or a manager and you get your car in the morning, you might hear yourself get ripped. You play the game that afternoon and you drive home and you get yourself ripped for another mistake you made. And it really changed that sports really became 
24-7 in every market in America, open for criticism. And one of my favorite moments, now it's a few years later, I'm in Seattle and I own the Mariners. Um, and a friend and from baseball, I guess I've told the story of Scary Reinsdorf, said, I'm not a religious man, but to think that I'm listening to a radio station that's ripping the guy who's now an owner, <laughs> and the guy who invented this format who ruined all of our lives. And... And he's invented a format that's ruined everybody's life in sports. <laughs> and now he owns the team and he's getting ripped by his invention. Proves to me that there's a guy. And I and I know that there's, and I never forgot that story. And it was true. It changed everybody's life. And and I got on the other side of it. I'm an owner and people are saying, what a moron this guy is. So it's like. Yeah, quite a, quite a karmic comeuppance for, yeah. for you, as, as it were. So, yeah. did you ever hear from the Mets? Davy Johnson could get ripped now 24-7. Frank Cashin could get ripped 24-7. Yeah. Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, all those guys. Did you ever hear from them? Because now they're being inundated by critique yeah. that they never had to deal with before. Yeah, there was a tension, but sort of the idea was, look, you know, you're also getting exposure and promotion of your product 24-7. So, it comes with the territory. I. I've been on the other side of this. I'm very close to the Indianapolis Pacers and or the Indiana Pacers and the Colts and have good friends. And, you know, we, up until recently, we had the big sports talk station there. And every time I have lunch with somebody, they say, you know, me, this guy said this and this guy said that. How could, you know, it goes to the territory. You're getting exposure, but you've got to, you've got to be able to accept fair criticism and sometimes unfair criticism. I also think that sports talk began to take the place of the sports columnist in New right. York throughout the seventies, Dick Young, Mike right. Lupica, et cetera. Those were heavy hitting voices right now. Mike, Chris yep. and others yep. were the voices. Did you start seeing the influence, what they were saying had on maybe how Ab the rest of the public felt? Absolutely. Like they had this soapbox. They were knowledgeable. People followed them. Sometimes they agreed with them. They disagreed with them. But it elevated sort of the impact of sports. You know, I'm a student of history. Karl Marx, in his Communist Manifesto, said religion's the opiate of the masses. Well, today in the United States in 2023, sports, sports is the opiate of the masses. This is what people care about. This is their escape from the world. And it's an integral part of their lives. When did you see copycat sports talk happen after the success of the fan? Uh, when it started getting good ratings and making money. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't take, but it was, but it was pretty soon. I mean, I marveled today. I went to the Super Bowl because I'm it, talking about the book and I had never been to Radio Row. And I marvel that from one sports talk station that you have hundreds of stored sports talk stations and networks and everything, you know, integral part of people's lives all over the country you know i'm going to paraphrase this but i heard you say this in a previous interview was that there's something about radio that's caused you to invest in it beyond rationality that there is yeah. a certain charm or magic to it that yeah. that you're drawn to as yeah. somebody who also loves the theater of the mind and has been committed yeah. to radio for my entire career now two decades yeah i share the same opinion what do you think that is about radio that that grasps you so tightly i think it just an integral part of your life um you know when you're listening to something in your own community and it touches your life your daily existence i think it makes a big difference 
it is so important. You can't even imagine sports talk radio not having a local outlet. But it is kind of crazy to think that New Yorkers, all tens of millions of them up until 1987, didn't have a place to go. It just kind of seems insane not to have had that platform for them now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does in retrospect. You know, but if somebody had asked me, you think there'll be 700 people copying this idea? I would, I would have said, no, I think that's probably the least likely thing I've ever heard. You mentioned purchasing the Seattle Mariners in 1989. Yeah. And ultimately, it was not a success for you, a rare failure for you business-wise. And there was a lot of things stacked against you with how the Mariners were, where they were economically in baseball. That problem right. might be a little bit better today, but it's still a problem. But what was yeah. that financial disparity like in the late 80s in MLB? Well, I got in trouble. I said, without revenue sharing, I said, to really own, and I admit it, to own a, a, a team in Seattle or Kansas City or Pittsburgh in those days, you really need to be a billionaire because you're going to lose a lot of money. Now, I also said, if you own the Yankees or the Dodgers, if you had a moderately successful paper route, you'd be fine. Um, but, you know, yeah, it was tough. And we were not prepared. We, we went through a downturn in radio. We got a $12 million collusion payment. We never got a cable TV deal. So, and when we bought it, we said, look, we just can't afford to sustain these losses. Yeah. You got to be one of us in many ways, yeah. uh, a sports fan that grew up listening on the radio to then owning a professional right. sports team. Were there moments where you were almost like Tom Hanks and big, oh my goodness, I'm a kid, but I'm in an adult world and I get to do all these things that I dreamt about? Yeah, I was, although you, you, you were tempered by how tough the economics were. One of my best friends from college came up to watch us visit in Seattle. And he, we, you know, we were in the office all day working and then went to the ballpark a couple nights. And he said, my God, you guys are like, you're working hard. This is like a real job. And I said, <laughs> uh, the economics are so bad. It's an impossible real job. So uh, one of my favorite lines is somebody said, every man in America wants to own a major league baseball team, except the 30 that actually do. Uh, <laughs> But I love it. We made some great friends and had a lot of fun. Probably the best. I always say in the book, you you do your greatest management in the toughest situations. And we invented things because we joked when we got there. We said, look, if we had bought the Red Sox, our marketing campaign is season starts April 5th. Get your tickets now. But in Seattle, you started by saying, okay, we know you think we suck, but Here's, here's some new, we're new guys and we're going to try some fun things. And we did some, some really great things uh, that were a lot of fun. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. It also could not have been easy to draw people to the dark, cavernous 
antiseptic kingdom either, right? Yeah, it was when we did it, we had all sorts of great ideas. Um, the first thing we did is we brought the, the Lucas people in, Industrial Light Magic, and said, okay, we know that everybody calls this a tomb. Let's do holograms on the wall, on the ceiling. So, like, we're down six runs at the top of the fifth inning. Let's do thunder and lightning. And so the game's going to get rained out and the game's canceled. And we had all sorts of ideas. And they came in and they looked at it and said, look, your ideas are great and we could do it, but you don't even have a sound system up here that works. And we met with the county and said, hey, what about a new sound system? And they said, we don't have any money for that. But if you put up the money, we'll reimburse you later. But it was, it was just... It was an unloved building, um, and it made it and it made it much tougher. But we did all sorts of crazy stuff. We would think anybody listening right now, man, that's the that's the dream to own a professional sports team. But did you become disillusioned when you finally did it because of all the things that worked against you? No, I loved it. I was really proud of the people we. Had. I was really proud of the things we did. You know, we had singles nights, we had indoor fireworks, we had all sorts of contests. We invented a kid zone. Um, you know, we did, we did all sorts of fun things that I was very proud of that are now commonplace anywhere, but it was like, you know, our, our campaign was, look, you got to give us a try. We're doing fun stuff here. And it really, we, our biggest success was, was the average fan. We sold over 2 million tickets our second year. Um, so people, it resonated, but, but the economics were just impossible. So it sounds like, you know, everything was kind of working against you financially. Did you have any regrets about decisions that you guys made? Well, my closest friend was president of the team. And the day we saw the team, he said, what could we have done differently? And he said, given the economics, um, there was almost nothing that could be done. I think, and I talk about the book, Seattle is a wonderful town. I loved it. I always said, I'd like to do anything in Seattle, but own their baseball team. Um, but, but given the nature of the relationship between the team and the corporate community and the government, the lack of media revenues, the lack of other things it was you know it was probably you know i would say if you're on a, a field and you have to kick a 65 yard field goal into the wind to win the game you shouldn't be on the field mm. was there ever any regrets about what you guys did at the fan well i think you know we, we certainly should have done it differently in the beginning so i think we certainly made mistakes um but we had that we had the staying power to correct them and then it all turned around i think we had had the staying power to correct some of the issues in Seattle. We had a great young team. We had Junior and Edgar Martinez and Randy Johnson. Over time, they you know they were competitive and, and won enough that the economics uh, allowed them to take care of themselves. You know, a lot of times, the question: How long can you stay in a situation till it turns around? Sometimes mm -hmm. it never turns. We'll wrap up with this. You were actually at Game Six of the 1986 World Series. Yeah. Our first episode was highlighted by Mookie Wilson. We had a long conversation about that game, about the at-bat, about the ball going through Buckner's legs and the relationship yeah. that those guys ended up having friendship over the years. Yeah. You're in the you're in the building. Yeah. What what was it like when they're down two runs and there's two outs? And what was it like when the Mets end up winning that game? Well, the one thing that stands out is we were down right behind home plate near the Red Sox family wives and family members uh, and they were all you know obviously excited we weren't that far from them and and when there were two outs somebody inadvertently flashed the sign on the scoreboard congratulations boston red sox 1986 world champions and i happened to see it and kind of laughed and said boys 
you know, if the Mets come back, somebody's going to have seen their career ended. And then everything else happened, and it was just pandemonium. I mean, I can still remember being at the seventh game, but the sixth game, you know, was one of those epic games of all time. And being there, uh, it was our first year of owning the station and carrying the games. It was before we actually started fan, but we had it, 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 and it was just memorable. It was so much fun. Boy, that is a that's a good hood ornament. That's a good charm ahead of what you would do to have yep. the Mets win the World Series in '86. You must have felt like, man, this is a good start to things. It was a good start to things. Yes, yes. The book is Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down: The Ups, Downs, and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. It goes into the history of WFAN, New York City Radio. So, for our listeners that are really into the history of the fan, Mike and the Mad Dog how the Mets came to be on the fan, et cetera. It's a really great read. Father's Day is coming up. Good purchase there. Check it out. Never ride a roller coaster upside down. Jeff Smullyan, our guest here on the show. Jeff, this was so good, man. Thanks so much for doing it. Damon, I loved it. Thank you. And uh, I just it's been delightful. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Well, thanks so much to Jeff Smullyan for joining us here on New York Accent. That was, that was really interesting. That was really insightful. And Boy, a lot of cool stories from the the dawn of sports talk radio. It's just impossible to imagine being a sports fan in New York and not having the fan as a central part of your experience. Maybe the central part of digesting how people felt about your team and reacting to your team. So that's a pretty amazing origin story that not many of us can process. You know, I I grew up in the 80s. I don't really remember a time before WFAN. And we always invite emails to the the New York Accent podcast. And so I want to read one from Mark in Livingston, New Jersey, who writes it. And the email address that you can write in and and join the the conversation is nyaccentpod at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. And Mark writes in, DA, I've seen YouTube videos, clips of you interviewing Mike Francesa. You were young and in high school at the time. How did it all come about? I always like seeing those old school clips of the guys. Well, Mark, I appreciate the email and the question. That actually was from 1997. I graduated high school. I I grew up in Warwick, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley of New York, and that's in Orange County. And I grew up in in Warwick back, um, and I graduated in 1997 from high school, and my high school had a communications course, and so we would do projects junior year, just kind of learning editing and how to use a camera and things like this, but by senior year, those that were really into it were kind of an advanced class, and we put together TV shows, quote-unquote TV shows, that would run or air on our local cable access station back in the day. And so me and a, a bunch of buddies of mine, we wanted to do a sports conversation, a sports TV show. And so we we branded a, quote, TV show, Metro Sports North. This was going to focus on the sports of New York City, north of the city where we grew up. And so amazingly, my communications teacher at the time, Mrs. Elizabeth Hurd, wrote, I think we wrote the letter and then she mailed it to WFAN. This is amazing, before email, I guess. And we asked, requested access to interview some of the people at WFAN, some of the hosts. Now, we had had some success already. We actually interviewed John Calipari and a couple of the Nets, including Kerry Kittles, when Calipari was head coach of the New Jersey Nets. We actually went to Jets 
spring practice as well. And we interviewed a few of the players uh, in their their little meeting area. We, we wanted to get Bill Parcells, but he blew us off, unsurprisingly. But we had some luck just as high schoolers reaching out to the professional teams. I'm not sure that would happen anymore, maybe. We sent this letter to WFAN because, I mean, interviewing any of the hosts on the fan, they were complete celebrities. And unbelievably, we got a, a phone call back. And it was from one of the program directors. At the time was Eric Spitz. And Eric worked under Mark Chernoff and called my communications teacher and said, yeah, well, you know what, they, they can come down and, and spend a few hours uh, taking some footage of, of the afternoon show, Mike and the Mad Dog, and maybe we'll have them accessible to them as well. And our minds exploded. Oh my goodness, we're going to go into the fandom. At the time, of course, everything, you're kind of starstruck, no matter what, because at that point I was 17, 18 years old, and, you know, interviewing professional athletes was was kind of mind-blowing in itself. John Calipari, obviously. But it, it still kind of paled in comparison to interviewing the radio guys because, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And they were larger than life in many ways. And so unbelievably WFAN coordinated for us to talk to Steve Summers, Mike Francesa and Chris Russo. And we could have our cameras in the studios for Mike and the Mad Dog for maybe 30 minutes, 45 minutes or something like that when they were doing the show. This was in the spring of 97. So, all three of them I got to sit down and do interviews with, and, and you can find that clip on YouTube. There's a couple of clips that I've, I've posted there over the years, and all three of them were great to me, and, and I will forever have a lot of gratitude for how they treated me as a young high school broadcaster without any chops. They all really listened to my questions and really answered my questions, and which was pretty amazing. And Steve Summers was incredible. He was playful. By the end of it, he stuck his finger in my ear. That's a whole conversation for a different day. But he was trying to tease me and kind of break the tension because he could tell that I was nervous. Both Chris and Mike were amazingly thoughtful in their answers. And I just couldn't believe it. And when you see these videos, if you do look them up, I think you'll feel the same way. Like, wow, they they were really class acts that to treat a high schooler that um, they didn't know from a hole in the wall with, with, I thought, great respect and dignity. And to fast forward, it's just amazing to think about, you know, years later, I would call Eric Spitz or I would email Eric Spitz or Mark Chernoff and ask if I could fill in when I was working my radio shifts full-time in either Kansas City or I was working in Miami, Florida, or even in Boston, and I would, you know, say, can I come in and do a fill-in shift overnight when I'm on vacation visiting my, my family back home? You know, can I come in for a week during Christmas? If you have nobody on, can I do a, a week's worth of shows? And they would consistently kind of let me come back and do stuff. And that led to me eventually working for them under the CBS Sports Radio umbrella. And so the, talk about how the world turns. I, I ended up working for... Uh, the people that allowed me to go there once upon a time in high school and working alongside the Schmooze and Mad Dog and and Francesa, which is just amazing, just really amazing, which also makes the whole feud between Francesa and I about the initials even more funny because I, I don't think he remembered that I interviewed him in high school. <laughs> and uh, now if you Google me, one of the first things that comes up is Francesa hates his initials, you know. DA versus Mike Francesa or whatever. So that's just very funny. But 
no, Mike and I bury the hatchet and, uh, and I, I'm forever very thankful that they treated me so well. And so uh, that was a wild, a wild high school experience to have. And, um, you know, I just cannot imagine a world where WFAN didn't exist or Sports Talk Radio didn't exist. I mean, this is my career. This is my livelihood now. And to think that it didn't really exist before 1987 in any full-time capacity is just completely mind-blowing. You could always email any questions you might have or, or comments about the guests that we have, what have you, uh, by emailing me, like I said, nyaccentpod at gmail.com. Well, thanks for listening to this episode with Jeff Simoleon. As always, we would love to have you subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed the, the conversation. We love to, to have new subscribers join and, and spread the word. So hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you could rate this or review this, that would be amazing. That helps other people find the podcast. And you can hear me on WFAN, usually Saturday afternoons between 1 and 3 o'clock if there is no Yankees baseball. That will do it for this episode of New York Accent. We will see you next Tuesday. Thanks so much for downloading. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks so much for spreading the word. We've had some great feedback already. And a lot of, uh, a lot of people are excited about the podcast, the project. So that's meant a lot to us as well. New York Accent is an original Odyssey podcast.